You can remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Joel chapter 3. You have one of the pew Bibles that's on page 762, 762. Again, Joel chapter three, the final chapter of Joel. Please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word this morning. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the, uh, the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and, a, and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them. And I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes. In the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people and a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land, but Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we pray that you would make your word as it has been read and it is, is going to be preached an effectual means of convincing and converting lost sinners and building us up as your people in holiness, righteousness, through faith unto salvation. Show us Jesus Christ. By your Holy Spirit, work in our hearts. Open up our minds and our eyes to understand your word, to see the good news that is found there in Jesus Christ. We pray. Amen. You may be seated. Happy New Year's Day, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. We look forward to this new day, to this new year with anticipation and expectation of what the new year is going to be, is what is go, what's going to bring, right? We can think forward and we can say everything is going to be different this year. 2023, that's my year. Every year further removed from 2020, 2020 is going to get better and better and better. This is finally going to be the year that I accomplish fill in the blank with whatever your goals are this year. It's good to have anticipation for the new year. I'm excited for 2023. If I'm honest, I'm also a little bit terrified for 2023. But the new year can be a good time for setting new goals. Lexi is far better at setting goals for the new year than I am, but it can be a helpful thing to try to build new habits, both spiritual habits and physical habits, to start new hobbies, to try to grow as a person. I think if one, one goal that all Christians should have is when 2024 rolls around, I want to be more like Jesus, right? That should be our goal. Our New Year's resolution every year, I want to be sanctified. I want to be more like Christ. But if we're honest, New Year's Day is often a letdown. It can never be the new beginning that we want it to be. We anticipate the new year, but then we wake up this morning, January 1st, and we step outside and the air smells exactly the same. We're reminded right away that we live in Wisconsin when I hop in my car to drive to the church early this morning, and I realized that I could have probably just ice skated to church, because there's ice everywhere, right? We live in Wisconsin. The cold is still a reality. There's still sin in my heart. There's still issues in my life. There's still issues in the world. It's all still there. We wake up January 1st, and we think maybe this time it'll all be gone, but nope. So just another January 1st, I'm still broken, our world is still fallen, but we have hope. The New Year's Day is always a good day, but it's not the right day to place all of our expectations and hopes on. There's only one day that can meet those hopes and those expectations. And that's the day at the center of our passage this morning. The day that's at the center of the passage of the entire book of Joel, the day of the Lord. And that is the day that we should look forward to with anticipation. That is the day when our fallen and sinful hearts and our fallen and sinful world will be made new. When we will wake up in a new creation, the fallen things are passed away. The new has come. That is the day that we long for. So far in the book of Joel in chapters one and two, we've seen God's 
judgment against his people for their disobedience and how his judgment manifested for them as this locust plague, this terrible locust plague. These locusts swarmed upon the land, utterly devastating everything, destroying all of their crops, all of their vines and grapes. The soil was dry. The people were in mourning. People were in lament. And as we've seen also in Joel, that was only just a foretaste of the judgment of the day of the Lord. It was meant to function kind of as a warning to say, if this is terrifying, let this be a warning of this greater day that is coming. So it was paired with this call to to repent, to return to the Lord. So you see at the end of Joel 2, to call upon the name of the Lord and to be saved. But there was also this hopeful turn in Joel chapter 2. In verse 18, Joel reminded his readers and he reminds us that the day of the Lord not only means judgment for the wicked, but it also means reversal and restoration for those who trust in God. There was a coming day when the terrible pain that Israel was experiencing, both at the wicked, the hand of the wickedness of other people and also as the consequences of their own sin, How often are both of those things playing into our experiences in this life? The sins of other people against us and our own consequences for the things that we do. But there was a promised day when that pain and destruction would be reversed to joy, to flourishing, abundance, wholeness, and satisfaction. And Joel pointed them forward to that as the reality for God's people who would trust in him. And Joel chapter 3 continues that theme of hope and restoration for God's repentant people. This entire chapter, although it might not look like it at first glance, this entire chapter is meant as good news for the readers. And that should be really refreshing for us. For all the time that we've spent in the Minor Prophets hearing of judgment and warning, to have a chapter that is strictly good news for its original audience. Now, that doesn't mean this passage contains no hard truths or no mention of judgment, but for the people of God, specifically for those who are repentant, who have turned to the Lord, called upon him, this entire chapter is good news. So the big idea of chapter three this morning is this, and if you're taking notes, I'll read this twice for us. God promises his people a day where sin's destruction is reversed to eternal blessing. God promises his people a day where sin's destruction is reversed to eternal blessing. And we're going to look at three aspects of that eternal blessing this morning in this chapter. We're going to see eternal protection, eternal prosperity, and eternal presence. So three Ps. Josh keeps telling me I need to get better at alliteration. So here we go, and he's not even here this morning. Eternal protection, prosperity, and presence. So let's dive into that first main point. God promises his people a day where sin's destruction is reversed to eternal protection. Now, there are two main sections in this chapter. If you have the ESV, you see that there are two main headers, one starting off the chapter and then one before verse 17. Now, the way that I divide up this chapter is slightly different than the ESV. 
and of course they're all biblical scholars, they probably know better than me, but I have my reasons. We're going to separate the text this morning into two sections, but instead of placing the second header before verse 17, we're going to place it after verse 17. And I have a few reasons for this, uh, a couple of which we will talk about a little bit later. But if you look at the beginning of those two sections, verse 1 and then verse 18, you'll notice a parallelism between the language. And it's language that is often used at the beginning of prophetic declarations. Verse 1, you see, in those days and at that time. And then he begins his declaration. Then we see that in verse 18, and in that day. Joel is starting another prophetic declaration in verse 18. And we'll, again, see a couple other reasons. And there's some significance to where you've put that break, but not a whole lot. It really mostly means the same wherever you put that new header. But we're going to look at those two main sections. And the first one, our longest chunk this morning, as we look at eternal protection for God's people, is in verses 1 through 17. And again, remember, this whole section is good news. And we're reminded of that right away in verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Notice in verses 1 through 3, how the restoration of God's people is directly tied to God's judgment of the nations. In verses 1 through 3, those two realities go hand in hand. You might think that seems really odd. We'll talk about why that is, but... If you just look at those verses, again, for behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. So God's deliverance of his people is tied to his deliverance from their enemies. His judgment on the nations here in this passage is strictly tied to their persecution of God's people. We see that wonderful word because in those first three verses. They're being judged because they have scattered God's people among the nations, because they've divided up his land, because they've sold God's people into slavery. And we see how little they value human life by the price that they're willing to take for a boy or for a girl. They valued human life so low that they were willing to trade a boy for a prostitute. They were willing to trade a girl for wine. Right? So often sin causes us to dehumanize other people, to lower our value of human life, to treat people with inhumanity. And this is what these enemies have done against God's people. And God is going to enter into judgment against them for that. And we see that judgment then in verse 4 through 8. The Lord declares that he's going to return the wickedness of these nations back upon them. And the emphasis here is that God's judgment against these nations is perfectly fitting with their wickedness. We see the repetition of a phrase here, I will return your payment on your own head. He says, are you paying me back for something? Right, we see that their treatment of God's people was a direct treatment, evil treatment against God himself. He says, if, 
If you're paying me back, I'm going to pay you back with those exact same things. And we see the fittingness of their judgment. They have sent God's people into exile. They've scattered them, sold them into slavery. And then we see in verse 8, that exact same thing is brought then against them. Their sons and their daughters are sold, and they are scattered and sent to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. So again, God's judgment is always just. It is always fitting. It is never excessive. It matches the sin. Then we see in verses 9 through 12, the Lord calls and gathers the nations to prepare for war as an army in the valley of Jehoshaphat. We see that specific valley mentioned in both verse 2 and 12. If you notice the title of the sermon, Mountains, Valleys, and Rivers, we're going to see three valleys, actually, just in this one chapter, and really only one mountain and one river. So it could have been mountain, valleys, and river, but that didn't have a ring to it. So went plural on all three. But this is the first valley that we see, the Valley of Jehoshaphat. We don't actually know of any actual Valley of Jehoshaphat. The name here is symbolic. It means Yahweh judges. Yahweh judges. And that symbolism comes out very clearly if you look at the next line, the line that follows the Valley of Jehoshaphat in both verse 2 and 12. In 2, it's, I will gather them, bring them down to the Valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there. Then in verse 12, let the nations stir themselves up and come to the Valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge. So it's the pairing of that same word, both in the name of the valley and in what God is going to do in that valley. When we think of valleys here, don't really think of something like a canyon, like the Grand Canyon. Think of something more like the Fox Valley. It's incredibly flat here. It's maybe my least favorite part of Oshkosh. I love hills. It's just flat in every single direction here. The valleys in this area were these wide plains between hilly areas. And there were places that armies would gather to fight against each other. We see this throughout scripture, whether it's Israel fighting against the Philistines or any other army, they would often gather in these wide plains and these valleys. The armies would each gather on either end of the valley and they would come together to fight. And so that's what God is calling them. He's saying, come down to the valley, stir up your armies, gather your people together. Look at verses nine through 11. Proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up. And then notice here the flipping of the famous phrase from Isaiah 2 and Malachi, right? Beat your plowshares into swords. In Isaiah 2, it's beat your swords into plowshares. And then here, and your pruning hooks into spears. In Isaiah 2, it's and your spears into pruning hooks. So this is flipped. It says, let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come all you surrounding nations and gather yourselves there. So he's saying, instead of taking your implements and instruments of war and turning them into agricultural instruments, he's saying this time, grab those plowshares, grab those for us, hose, whatever you have working in your garden, turn it into a sword, turn it into a spear, come up for battle, all of you, even the weak, gather together in this valley. And that's the one army. But who is the second army? Who's on the other side of this valley against them? The end of verse 11 tells us, bring down your warriors, O Lord. The other side of this valley is the armies of God. Terrifying prospect for the nations gathered on one side 
If you remember, the Israelites were all afraid of Goliath. They didn't want to enter into this battle. They thought that person is too strong for us. There's no way we can win. Just imagine in this army, the arm, in this valley, the armies of the nations gathered against and they look across the valley and what do they see? But the very armies of God brought up against them, a terrifying prospect. We see again that they have no hope of winning this battle. It's described as uh, with this harvest language in verse 13, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. God is coming against them, and they stand no chance in this valley. And verses 14 through 16, here we see the valley given a different name. So it's our second valley. Instead of the valley of Jehoshaphat, it's now called the valley of decision. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. And again, this is not talking about a known valley by the name, the valley of decision. It's a symbolic reference to God's deciding upon the fate of the nations. So this isn't our decision. It's not saying come to this valley and choose now whether you're going to follow God or you're going to follow yourself or your sinful way. This isn't our decision. This is God's decision. This is God sitting as a judge in his courtroom deciding on the sentence of us, the criminals. God is the decider in this valley. And there's this terrifying and vivid imagery then of We see the sun and moon being darkened. We can probably imagine that. Imagine just darkness creeping over the land. The stars cease to shine. The earth quakes. God's voice rumbles through this valley. God's decision against the nations is weighty. And it's pictured by that vivid imagery that we have. Again, all of this is a picture of the day of the Lord as the final judgment against God's enemies. A lot of the same language is used at the end of Revelation to describe God's victory over his enemies and over Satan on that last day. The judgment of God is a terrifying prospect. But remember the first verse in this chapter. This chapter is not meant to frighten God's people. This is meant to to give God's people good news, to remind them of God's deliverance. This language of judgment in this chapter is not against God's people. It's against God's enemies and the enemies of God's people. Look at the end of verse 16 and into verse 17, which is the very end of this first section. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, And Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. For God's people who suffer at the hands of others, for those who have been mistreated or mocked or persecuted, this is very good news. Well, the enemies of God's people are in the valley of judgment, the valley of decision. Where are God's people? They are with God. 
on the mountain of Jerusalem, safe within the walls of the city. They're never to be attacked, killed, and defeated ever again. That final phrase, strangers shall never again pass through it, doesn't mean travelers aren't going to come visit your beautiful city. It's talking about armies invading. Never again will an enemy army break through the walls of Jerusalem. Never again will your, will your people be carried off to a distant land. Never again will you be defeated and mocked and attacked. One of the common cries that we hear in the Psalms is just what we saw in our call to worship this morning. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. For the deceitful and unjust man, from the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. As those who have often lived a comparatively persecution-free life in our world, we need to learn this righteous prayer for vindication, justice, and deliverance. If not for ourselves, then for our brothers and sisters who are persecuted around the world. Do we pray these prayers for our persecuted brothers and sisters as often as we ought? Do we cry out for their deliverance? Do we cry out for God's judgment against their enemies? The good news of this passage is that although pain and hardship at the hands of others may last through this life, there is a day coming when God is going to say, no more, no more. A day when he will gather the enemies for destruction and his people for comfort. A day when he will be their refuge. He will wipe their tears from their eyes and usher them into eternal peace and joy. May we pray for that day. May we long for that day. God promises his people a day where sin's destruction is reversed to eternal protection. Our second main point follows the turn that we see then in verse 18 from eternal protection to eternal prosperity. The second point is this. God promises his people a day where sin's destruction is reversed to eternal prosperity. Eternal prosperity. Prosperity is a dangerous word to say in an evangelical church. But it's a word that needs to be recovered for a proper use for Christians. We don't need to be afraid of the word prosperity. Prosperity gospel, on the other hand, stay away. The prosperity gospel has done a lot to sour the taste of the word prosperity in the mouths of Christians. The prosperity gospel preaches prosperity, health, and wealth in this life for anyone who will just claim it with enough faith. Now, there are so many issues with that. I do not have time to outline all of them for us this morning. But the problem with the prosperity gospel is not that God wants us to be prosperous and healthy. That is not the issue with the prosperity gospel. The issue with the prosperity gospel is that it fails to realize that those things are not promised to us in this life, but they are promised to us in the next. In fact, if God has promised anything to us in this life, it's that we will have trouble in this life, that we will have hardship. This life is not going to be easy for us. Jesus told his disciples just that much. 
Another way to say it is that the prosperity gospel brings things into the now and the already that are meant for the not yet. But God has, we need to be clear on this, God has promised prosperity, health, and abundance for his people. And we should not be shy about saying that. That's good news for us. But that prosperity won't be realized until Jesus returns and ushers in a new heavens and a new earth. It's a heavenly instead of a here and now type of prosperity. And these final verses of Joel paint for us a beautiful, inviting, and vivid picture of the future prosperity and blessing promised to God's people. Look with me to verses 18 and 19. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come up from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. This is a complete reversal of the devastation brought by the locusts. You got to remember the context of the locusts for them. They were living in a day when the vineyards and the land were dry and desolate. But God promised instead that the mountains will flow with sweet wine. The hills will flow with milk. The valleys will flow with water. The dryness and the barrenness of the land that they experienced from the locusts only heightens the beauty and the satisfaction that's found in this promise. Every time I watch The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, I get super thirsty watching Sam and Frodo making the long trek through the arid land of Mordor. I could have honestly just drank a gallon of water, but I watched that scene where they are walking through this hot, dry, dark land, dry, parched skin, and Frodo takes that last sip from his canteen and the last drop of water falls out. And you can tell that it's not satisfying his thirst. And you know that there are miles and miles and miles ahead for them to go through Mordor. And again, I could have just drank a gallon of water and I am going to be parched watching that. But imagine how satisfying that first full gulp of clean, cold water would have been for Frodo and for Sam. The dryness and the thirst makes the satisfaction of that thirst so much better. And in this passage, the dryness and barrenness of the land is equally matched by the abundance and prosperity that God promises to his people. And how much more satisfying for us is the promised abundance when we have lived in a world so marred by the destruction of sin. The beauty here is that it's not only just a promise of abundance, but it's a promise of reversal and restoration. This comes out very clear in the image of a river flowing from the house of God to fill the dry valley of Shittim. This is the third valley that we've run into in this passage here. And again, we don't know of the valley of Shittim as a real place. Shittim means acacia trees, which grow in dry environments. So that might help us a little bit. Some people say that it might be a valley that flows into the Dead Sea. But whether, we not, whether or not we know where this valley is, the imagery is really clear for us. It's the image of water flowing out to refresh a dry and arid land, to bring new life, lush gardens. And this is actually a recurring piece of imagery throughout the Bible. See this all over the place. 
We see it in Psalm 47, Genesis 2, Ezekiel 47, Revelation 22, John 4. It's everywhere. It's not just here. We see it throughout the Bible, this river of living water flowing out from the temple into the desert, bringing flourishing life and abundance. Listen to just a few verses from Ezekiel 47. This is verses 8 through 12. You don't need to turn there, but listen to this. And listen to how, how vivid and wonderful this picture of this river is. Again, Ezekiel 47. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arba and enters the sea. That's the Dead Sea. This water flows into the Dead Sea. And it says, when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. Love that verse. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea. I don't know if they're fly fishing, throwing nets, either way. Fishermen will stand beside the sea. From Engedi to Engelame, it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Now that last image there, river flowing, trees growing on the sides, the leaves being for healing. Does that remind you of anything? Because it should. Our New Testament reading this morning from Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves, of the, trees were, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And this beautiful, beautiful imagery. And this imagery would be especially powerful for those living in the ancient Near East, where rivers brought lush fertility in life. Think especially of Egypt. Have you ever looked at a satellite view of Egypt? Don't do it right now, but go on Google Maps, click on satellite view after the service, and look at Egypt you'll notice that everything is a desert. Everything except this one little strip of lush farmland. Would you guess where that farmland is found? On the banks of the Nile River. In the middle of the desert, palm trees, farmland, lush gardens, all supplied by this river flowing through the desert. And when the river meets its mouth at the Mediterranean Sea at the Nile Delta. It spreads out across the land. And you'll see that there are miles upon miles upon miles of farmland springing up out of the desert from the, from the Nile River. God's gracious plan is to restore life and abundance to his creation and to his people who have been so marred by the destruction of sin. And again, do we long for this? 
Do we desire this with every fiber of our being? And perhaps the most significant part of this imagery, wherever it appears in scripture, is that the source of the river is always identified for us. The source of the river matters. In the early 19th century, many explorers went on expeditions to find the headwaters of the Mississippi River. They wanted to find the source of this great river in North America. Many people tried and failed, but in 1832, Henry Rowe Schoolcraft was guided there by a group of Ojibwe Indians. They knew, right? They knew where the headwaters of the Mississippi was. It was, it was him and the rest of us that were uh, completely in the dark. And so they led Henry Rowe Schoolcraft to Lake Itasca in northern Minnesota in 1832. Now, if you've ever visited the headwaters of the Mississippi, it's actually pretty neat if you want to be able to jump across the Mississippi River and wade through it ankle deep. You can do that there. It's kind of weird to say this little thing. Here is the Mississippi, but it flows out of this small lake in northern Minnesota, Lake Itasca. Now, the search for the headwaters of the Mississippi was significant, but it was not nearly as important as the search for the headwaters of this living water. What is the source? Where are the springs? Where does this river flow from? Well, we're told the end of verse 18, and the fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. In every instance that this river imagery is used in scripture, the source is the temple of God. It's the house of the Lord, the throne room of God. There is only one source for this kind of restoration. Only one source of these living waters of refreshment. And that source is God himself. God is the fount of every blessing, as we just sang this morning. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy, never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. That's exactly what we are confessing in that song. And that is exactly what we rejoice in in this passage. God alone is that fount of every blessing. So we've seen God's promises uh, for his people, that he promises a day when sin's destruction is reversed to eternal protection and eternal prosperity. And lastly, we see in this passage that God promises his people a day where sin's destruction is reversed to eternal presence, to eternal presence. When we recognize that God is himself the fountain of this river, that God is the source of every blessing, then the promise in the gospel that we get eternal fellowship in the presence of God should absolutely floor us. We get to be with this God, with this fount. We get to drink of this spring as we are fellowshipping with our God for all eternity. Look at the end of each of the two sections, the end of 16 into 17. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells, the word there is tabernacles, in Zion, my holy mountain. God dwells 
with his people. He dwells within the gates of his city with his people. Look at then at the end of verse 21 or into 21. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged. For the Lord dwells. Again, the Lord tabernacles in Zion on his holy mountain, in his holy city, with his people. Eternal protection and eternal prosperity belong to God's people because we will be with God himself. All of these blessings, protection, prosperity, and presence are for those who dwell with God in his city. But who is it that dwells in Zion with God, in the heavenly Jerusalem, Joel 2 tells us exactly how to become a member of this city. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Those who call upon the name of the Lord are not out in the valley in the day of judgment. They are within the walls of the city with their God, protected, enjoying great provision and prosperity in the presence of God. In Romans chapter 10, verse 13, Paul clarifies for us what it means to call on the name of the Lord. Paul directly applies it to believing in Jesus Christ. To call upon the name of the Lord is to believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus, the one that we trust, is the one who secured for us the blessings of God in his first coming and who will usher them in, in fullness, at his second coming. This is why the season that we have just come out of, Advent and Christmas, why they are so significant. Because we celebrate what John 1 tells us, that the word became flesh and dwelt, again, tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Jesus came to defeat our greatest enemies, sin, death, and Satan. Jesus came that we might have springs of living water. Jesus came to dwell with us so that we can dwell with God. And Jesus is returning, bringing to us one day the fullness of what we only have a foretaste of now. Eternal protection, prosperity, and presence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for the promises that are ours. Help us to keep these things in the forefront of our mind, to ponder what it will be like to be with you, to drink of these clear, refreshing springs, to experience protection, prosperity and your own presence for all eternity. Stir in our hearts, God, a longing for these things. And help us to be those, Father, that call upon the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that believe in him from our hearts and are saved to dwell with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus institutes for us uh, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. 
Matthew 26, 26 through 29 says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. In just these three short verses, we're reminded of what this sacrament is all about. We're reminded that it points us to Jesus, to his body, which was given up for us on the cross, to his blood that was shed shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins. We're also reminded by Jesus' own words that when we take this meal, we look forward to the day that we will drink together with our Lord in his Father's kingdom. And we long for that day when we come to this meal. This meal is just a small foretaste, a little piece of bread, a little cup of wine, a small foretaste of an abundant feast that we will have with our Lord. This is also a serious table to come forward to. We're reminded of restoration, deliverance, but also of judgment. There is a warning for us when we come forward to eat and drink in a worthy manner. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 calls us to examine ourselves. So before we come forward this morning, I'd ask you to examine yourself to search your heart. Are you one of those that is calling upon the name of the Lord? Are you a citizen of Zion City? Are these promises for you? If you can say, yes, this table is for you, even in your weakness. And if you don't know how you would answer that question, then we would ask that you remain in your seats. We'd love to talk with you more about the good news of the gospel that is found in Jesus Christ. So let's take a moment for self-examination.